Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalvar Rohaj, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm an even more senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and... Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, also a senior fellow, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's just the three of us for a for a change, uh, there are lots of different topics to, to to cover, I suppose, which have been in the news in connection to, to Russia's war against Ukraine. And perhaps let's start with the most pressing and disturbing one, namely Russia's nuclear saber rattling and possible ramifications of, of, of the decision to illegally annex these, these occupied territories, which could, as some suggest, lead Russia to the use of nuclear weapons against against the U- Ukrainians. Uh, President Biden, at, speaking at a fundraiser in, in, in New York, I believe, said that this scenario would be Armageddon for, 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 for the world. Um, so instead of moderating the sort of sense of panic that reigns in some circles, uh, might have in, un, unwittingly contributed to exacerbating it. But I wonder what, what you know the two of you think about you know where both the American discussion on the subject is and where the sort of real threat of, of 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 the use of nuclear weapons is in Ukraine. I have more questions than answers, so then I'll just turn to Giselle. <laughs> but um, but I also watched um, his follow-up interview, I believe it was for CNN, um, and he is asked, um, you know, isn't that something that creates more fear, exactly what you're saying, Talibor, and what do the actual scenarios look like? And Biden, every time answers very immediately saying, I don't want to draw them out. I don't want to even draw out the war games um, that have been, you know, partially made public um, in in the media. And so then the question is, with um, all the theory and the escalation um, sort of spiral, where are we in terms of a response? Uh, We haven't gotten anything clear from the administration. And then many scholars, experts have said that, uh, have suggested that the administration's response would be a conventional one. Maybe, maybe still that's an option. It's only sanctions, depending on how big the blast is, where it is, where it would be, etc. But clearly not uh, clearly drawing the attention away from nuclear warfare and a direct nuclear confrontation that obviously everybody wants to avoid. But that to me raises a bunch of questions because it sort of undermines the strategy that one should have to say we're not excluding any options from uh, the table. Um, We are deterring by saying we will respond the way we want to respond. And so aren't we then back to the same strategy and the same kinds of statements, including of Biden at the beginning of the war, that we want to avoid World War III, and that is our so-called strategy? Okay. You know, it's Joe Biden. You can never tell what exactly 
he's thinking. Uh, Delaware, I think the quote was, we're closer to Armageddon that we've been since any time since the Cuban nuclear crisis. So I'm kind of tempted to... to Should he be doing a fundraiser in New York City then? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, well, that tells you, A, that we're not, actually. <laughs> you know, if he's like leaving the situation room, then all is probably not lost yet, uh, you know. Uh, but I, I always suspected him of having a, a John Kennedy, you know, sort of fixation or, you know, obsession. So if he's elevating himself to the sort of cool, comp collected uh, level of President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was, it's not an accurate picture, but it's the myth, you know, it's, it's more about what's going on in the president's head. And Yulia, as you probably pointed out, so it's changed the conversation. Instead of talking about Ukraine is winning a lot, Russia's army is falling apart, the long knives are out in Moscow, all things that we're about to talk about. We all run around, you know, sort of the chicken little sky is falling. Oh my God, it's nuclear warfare. And the, you know, the other thing that came out of the administration was still no attackums for, or long-range artillery for Ukraine. So I just don't, if there's a strategy here, I can't figure it out for the life of me. But to keep rewarding Putin, you know, who says the same thing, like once every 48 hours, yeah. is, you know, you should at least just sometimes be quiet. You know, just say our our reaction will be, you know, if you try this, our reaction will be swift and decisive. Don't talk about, you know, how many people you have to kill or what kind of warhead is acceptable and what kind of warhead is not acceptable. Just, you know, hold your fire and concentrate on the things that are more important. So, so I think there are like two dimensions to the question. Um... Yulia is asking. One is sort of domestic. You know, most Americans or Westerners, when you mention the use of nuclear weapons, like what they have in mind intuitively is some sort of full-fledged sort of strategic nuclear exchange between, you know, Russia and, and the United States. Right. And yes, I mean, that's the sort of Armageddon scenario. And and that sort of crowds out everything else in, in, in people's imagination. You sort of people say nuclear with weapons that you go online and buy your iodine tablets on Amazon. <laughs> That's right. Just in case they look well, you know, for, for the newest shelter. But but like make sure you have your cocktail ready to people in positions of responsibility should be duty bound to explain what is at stake here. That we are you know like nobody like Russia is not threatening with a sort of strategic nuclear exchange, right? So they are I think there is a you know, non-zero probability that they would be able to and willing to use tactical nukes in Ukraine itself with consequences that would overwhelmingly affect the Ukrainians, not the Americans. And and and, and so so like from the perspective of the Biden administration, I think it's it's just really unhelpful if they don't sort of counter the sort of dominant panicky narrative and let it sort of crowd out the sort of more responsible explanations of what might happen. Because then it leads to the situation where people uh, are you know panicked and, and and are saying well we you know like Elon Musk like we have to 
you know do anything to diffuse the tensions and so 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 i don't think that's that, that's helpful again um and and so the the other dimension of your question has to do with this question of deterrence like sort of are we signaling sort of credibly to the russians that we won't really impose costs on them if they go down this this route and 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 that those costs would be just like intolerable for 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 for, for the russian regime i'm kind of agnostic on that right so so like like biden might be a very sort of clumsy public communicator, but I imagine that the administration is talking to the Russians privately and 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 probably threatening them with all kinds of things. Yeah, Sullivan alluded to that, right? And I would hope that they have credibility in, in sort of making those making those threats, that those threats are indeed believable. I mean, you know, it would help if if if, if the administration could say it publicly because then it's sort of harder to walk away from that. But 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 I'm, I'm I'm more willing to sort of give them a pass on 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 that front just because we don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. But it makes it kind of the worst of both worlds. Okay, I, I think you're probably right that we've communicated a seriousness of purpose, you know, through government, private channels, et cetera, et cetera. But if you lose public support for the overall war effort or undermine uh, your strategy, as a result, <laughs> introduce Elon Musk into the conversation. Then you're 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 shooting yourself in the in the foot for for crying out loud. You know you're giving oxygen, and you know uh, who knows what the result of the upcoming midterms will be. But all this stuff only incentivizes the Ukraine haters on the right and on the, the, the ones in the Democratic Party or the anti-war crowd in the Democratic Party has been a dog that hasn't barked so far. But if, you know, if there's a thumping uh, in the midterms, uh, you know, who knows whether those people will start calling for Biden's head and, you know, uh, break away. I think this, this risk is particularly pronounced when it comes to, like, if, if there is a possibility that they are entertaining that, that you know, there would be a conventional response by the US and or by NATO, or that we would have to send, you know, teams to sort of help Ukrainians to deal with the radiation and the sort of fallout, which would have to be protected by US troops. Like, you know, like if that might be the potential next step, you want to, you know, like make the case to the public for something along those lines already, right? And I mean, they're doing the opposite, basically, by sort of spreading panic. Spreading panic and not like refusing to, like Biden did in this interview, refusing to go into it. And so we are in a situation in which he creates, I think, on purpose, a parallel to to the Cuban Missile Crisis. But then it was Armageddon. Now it's something very different, as you guys also um, mentioned. Tactical is very different from full-on direct confrontation. Ukraine is not in NATO, as problematic as that is. That makes it in the first place possible. And you know, beyond, uh, and, and then we go into, like, in that interview, into endless conversations about what might be in Putin's head, what might he perceive, is he rational or is he irrational, but that sort of also waves responsibility from us, um, because in the end, we can only presume that he's relatively rational, that he's not, you know, completely crazy. And so then the responsibility comes to the West as the supporters of Ukraine in this fight to say, we 
know that the more costs we make clear to Putin he will have, the less he will be determined to drop a nuke. We have to increase the costs and lower the benefits publicly, also in terms of not creating panic, to be able to make clear to everyone involved, including the supporters of, of Russia, not just Putin, that this is uh, that this is a major cost. I agree we shouldn't be drawing red lines that we're not willing and our public is not willing to take, but at least to clarify a little bit and not um, you know, speak down and say, these are things that I shall not be discussing um, because um, because it's not uh, not in the remit of the public. I, I believe that there's simple ways in which you can differentiate between Armageddon and um, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine and then discuss possible responses in vague terms. Um, and, and so that brings us to our responsibility as the West in terms of deterring Russia, because that's what deters Russia, only the West in, in the nuclear arsenal. And we completely sort of wave that off, at least Biden does. Um, and so we have to rely on Let's hope that communication bilaterally through um, governmental channels is stable and clear enough. It's just... Listen, you know, first of all, deterrence of Russia has failed like a long time ago. Okay. I mean, of course, they, they haven't used it nuclear weapon, but there have... And who's had all the red lines in the world contributing thus far? It's Putin. Okay, and he hasn't used a nuclear weapon. He said, "If he if he was going to live up to his nuclear threats, we'd all be cinders by now." So, you know, again, he just is like the boy crying wolf, and we haven't learned how to analyze or discount this. Every time he cries wolf, uh, we go into a, a meltdown, um, and that prolongs the war. I mean, let's, let's remember what the overall consequence of, uh, of this is. More Ukrainians die, more Russians die. It costs us more money. You know, the, the economic costs become greater and more debilitating and may lead to recession, so on and so forth. You would think that by this point, we would, we would not be so easily deterred from arming the Ukrainians in a way that that really might bring this war to an end as early as possible. And I, I think like the, the way like this is being discussed helps sort of foster two really unhelpful narratives. One has to do with this notion that somehow you know, Ukrainians and Zelensky are being unreasonable and maximalist. And if we like do not resist their demands, they're going to drag the world into a nuclear apocalypse. And hence, you know, maybe we should be exercising pressure on the Ukrainians to be reasonable and negotiate. I mean, I've I've heard this a lot over the past week or so. And I mean, it's, it's just it's 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 just crazy. I mean, when you think of it uh, in terms of sort of the precedents this would set, like if if any nuclear nation can sort of threaten nukes and then, like you know, the rest of the world will like strong arm the victim into making concessions. I mean, like what sort of world would that be? Uh, and also, like it's the, the sort of sheer knife there, like this is coming from self-styled realists, right? So the the idea that like now after like he's been like losing the war for six months, now he threatens nukes, and 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 then let, let's say we ensure that that Russia gets to keep 
its possessions in Ukraine, like would that be the end of it? Like would that mean that that he you know like will have lasting peace as a result of that? Like if you if you think that, <laughs> then like your realism really right. I, I have uh, I have a, means something very different. Than, I have two bridges. I like. Yeah. And like to say, uh, <laughs> in Brooklyn, and yeah, yeah. Or, or, or the across the yeah. <laughs> Speak, speaking of which, speaking of which, yeah, and just just one more thing. And, and the other notion is this idea of a you know, like there is nothing as dangerous as a cornered rat, as if we hadn't learned, like, from the past decade that, that Putin acts when he sees an opening. Right, yeah, like when right. he senses weakness, it's when Obama fails to enforce the red line in Syria that there is an opening. It's when, like, when he goes unpunished after you know right. 2014, and and we always sort of like fall back on this idea as as if I don't know, like there is some sort of like Orientalism about it, like like these like Russians, they have this sort of like wild sort of you know there's a sort of like <laughs> layer of sort of wilderness like in their souls where they do these like irrational things when cornered like no i mean he's a bully like you know he you, you push back he backs off i mean like he like we've sort of learned that but like they they haven't like they, they, he's, they've been making these threats throughout this war at different junctures and then then they we've sort of memory hold them it's it's really better to negotiate with the rats and give them half the pantry <laughs> And to corner them <laughs> and to exterminate them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the last note on that is how ridiculous this is also in light of the unfortunate Kiev bombings over the last um, the last couple of days that these realists that you, Dalibor, self-named realists that you talk about, they're arguing now constantly. I've seen it even in official channels, um, how bad this um, this argument is. Oh, if we just give them the already annexed um, regions, then everything's going to be fine. As if Putin is not doing and showing constantly that he thinks that Ukraine shouldn't exist. And so we only know about Ukraine that he wants it not to exist. Um, But there's a bunch of other countries that are next. And so, you know, there's not really a dilemma here or a choice. But obviously, this is how Russian propaganda is now biting into the West um, by by wrongly portraying this as a choice. Okay. Right. The Kirch Bridge now. Next topic. Um, made my Saturday morning. I have to um, pause here, not just in awe of what the Ukrainians did. Um, I don't know how they did it. I genuinely don't care that much. But um, but also about social media that has been exploding Saturday morning. I've never seen so much creativity and memes. And my favorite one sort of as takeaway that can be described in words, because some of them are just um, worth watching, some of the little films, um, is um, the picture of a part of the Kerch Bridge um, sort of fallen in. And someone was saying, now I finally see where the off-ramp is that everybody was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but now on a, on a serious note, uh, I guess we cannot talk about it without saying what it actually is. Um, it, it used to be the longest bridge uh, in Europe um, built uh, by Putin himself um, with a lot of money. Um, and in 2018, it was um, fully operational. He personally drove a truck over it. But beyond the symbolic importance of the bridge um, and its connection to Putin himself, 
himself, much like the Moskva ship in uh, in the Black Sea, also now at the bottom of the sea, is the fact that it was first and foremost strategic um, because it mostly had a stable and somewhat safe from Ukrainian attacks railway um, that was shipping uh, military capabilities um, from Russian mainland into um, Crimea to be then um, to be then projected um, north um, into Ukrainian um, uh, held uh, territory. And so that destruction leaves only one bridge um, in the north of the peninsula that is um, disputed in terms of territory. And so obviously this was a supply line that the Ukrainians had been aiming and chattering about as necessary, hence the attack MS um, wish, uh, among others, to be able to reach that, um, to be able to destroy, to stop the supply. And now they have, and um, the world is chatting about what caused um, the explosion, whether it was trucks, whether it was a super special submarine or something is sent from the sky. But it will affect, I think, um, uh, the Russian operations and um, the already really bad supply chains in um, in the months to come. I think the effects won't be visible on the battlefield to us um, in the next few weeks, but they will become visible um, in the longer term as we're heading into later fall. I don't know if you guys assess the Kerch Bridge as, as important as this. Well, we should mention that, that Yulia wrote a Prussian article a couple of months ago pointing out what a, an important target the bridge was. It was merely uh, suggesting where it should, okay, where should okay. be heading. <laughs> well, now we know who really the director of Ukrainian uh, <laughs> special operations. They were chatting about uh, I published it in beginning of June, but they were talking about it for months. It is surprising that the Western yeah. media hasn't caught on to it in the last months. Uh, yeah, just add one footnote to your uh, excellent summary. And I think and this, I think, will be felt in the battlefield quite rapidly, and that is that it was the really the vital uh, fuel line for the Russian army uh, in the Crimea and in the south. You know, fuel is big and heavy, uh, and so moving, you know, that and that was really, they also didn't just hit the bridge, they hit the bridge while it had a, a train of uh, fuel supplies on it, which made for an even more spectacular explosion and really high temperatures that almost certainly have uh, you know caused structural damage to the to the steel that the bridge is is made of so I, I think moving supplies of that bulk will be really you know because the Russian truck network is so bad uh, and you know again they're just the cargo, uh, the fuel cargo is so large, uh, it will be really hard to use what remains of the bridge to ship heavy fuelers uh, across it anytime soon. Um, and I think that spells a real problem for Russian forces in, in Crimea and in southern, the other southern parts of, of Ukraine. So I have one question for you, um, but before you, I ask it, um, I have to just say that my favorite meme was the the Bayer Tapestry version of it. 
with well, yeah, um, that's good. Oh, yeah, they said wasn't it, like, it wasn't that the Nord Stream one where the Anglo-Saxons? Uh, this time well, they, they, they made the They made one for 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 those Anglo-Saxons. Those Vikings are everywhere. It's the tapestry collection now. My nominee. Yeah, it was not as good as I thought those two was that the Kerch Bridge had been promoted to, you know, tunnel or submarine or something like that. Oh, there was also one about, you know, like a referendum in which 99% of the bridge voted for um, joining the Black Sea. So, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but my, my question is, um, it's, it, it, I was struck by, you know, the Russian insistence on this being a sort of terror attack conducted like by a group that 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 sort of took a truck on the bridge and exploded the truck mm -hmm. so apparently there's there's the sort of cctv footage that sort of shows the 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 putative truck that did it and also x-rays that refer to that same truck supposedly except that Actually, once you sort of look at the pictures from the X-ray and and the photos of the truck, there are all kinds of discrepancies, like sort of missing wheels and and so on and so forth. So, so clearly, uh, somebody sort of trying to mislead the public in Russia, maybe internationally, and it's just like to me, like I, I don't know, I don't know who did it and and how they did it exactly, but it seems weird that somebody would be invested in 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 in. So trying to like push this narrative, like you know, like does that make Russians look any better than than the alternatives? I'm just not quite sure I understand. No, because it, it would it would depend upon the Russian guards who supposedly are inspecting vehicles across the bridge being catastrophically inept, right? If you know, if there's an explosive device of that size, it would be pretty hard to miss. Right, you, know, you can't stick it, stick it under a couple of sacks of grain or boxes or whatever. I think well, they actually showed a video. I don't know if it was a fake or not of them inspecting, looking in, and seeing nothing um, into one of the trucks. But I think it's part um, the technical issues of of Russian propaganda that they're trying to put out as many alternative stories as possible for nothing to be believed. And that's sort of instrumentalized now from the Western side. I saw today um, reports that in Georgian media, for instance, all alternatives are on the table um, yeah. purposefully. And so that's, I think, part of it. But then the issue of terrorism, I, I find that interesting. And, and also the fact that Putin's reply was to create a commission investigating that. But now on a serious, on a serious note, um, you know, when you talk about terrorism in Russia, I think what you're referring to in this case, Putin and, and his leadership is legitimizing this as something that has happened before, that is small, that is domestic, pushing the audience away from this is a full scale war with Ukraine and Ukraine is beating you, but also referring back to parallels to the second Chechnyan war and how Putin came to power and what he did there and so you already have then the narrative legitimized with it for the domestic public yeah we have some crazy terrorists they were chechens now they're ukrainians maybe they're gay westerners or whatever their current narrative Zelensky and drag <laughs> that's right exactly but it's minimizing it's minimizing the impact so that um so that you know 
Putin's power is not reduced. I think that's how I interpreted um, this narrative of terror, uh, terrorism that it's trying to minimize because terrorism means to us in the United States something very different than it means much more domestic in Russia. Um, and so, yeah, to minimize it um, or, and diminish it to the extent um, that it becomes not something major and strategic, but something that, you know, Putin can deal with. Well, the, the, that brings up the subject of what's really going on inside the Kremlin, you know, the, the support for Putin. I mean, you know, as things get worse, the narratives get wackier, right? And there's clearly something going on behind the curtain uh, amongst factions. It's, it's you know, the, the conventional wisdom seems to be that it's a struggle amongst a variety of Putin-made creatures, but you know that doesn't that may not hold, right? And then you know again, where there's smoke, there's fire. So Putin's ability to sort of ride the tiger domestically that he's unleashed uh, does seem to be much more in danger than. Then, you know, again, that was part of the Putin narrative that he's just such a master, um, not, not only strategist, but manipulator of Russian politics, that he's completely invulnerable on the throne. And you got to question that at, at some point, right? Maybe we are at a point where this is questioned. I think our latest episode um, with Fred Kagan was really um, revealing of the in the let's say military political slash military infighting mm -hmm. at that time. And then just after we recorded it, we saw. Um, and it already gets forgotten because of the news ever since with Kerch and, and the consequences of that in Ukraine. Um, but but just before we had news of um, the Moscow city center being blocked, um, uh, made major arrests being made in the military. We don't have um, final reports on who these are, um, but it looks we've had now a few episodes and this was one of them over the last few days that looked like Russia Moscow particularly is not stable anymore like on paper it's in invisible is not stable anymore and so we heard from Fred Kagan about political heads of military factions let's just put it that way being amplifying their resistance and their infighting without pointing to Putin directly um, at least at, at that level but um, ever since we see more of that in real unease on the streets of Moscow. But then obviously the question is, aren't we in the West too quick to call this? Um, because there's been other totalitarian regimes where we've been waiting for decades for them to fall apart. And this sort of reminds me of what Russians have been saying from the beginning of this war, and that is we went through so much suffering. Do you really think that some sanctions and even uh, failure on the battlefield will break our, our support for Putin? Um, we have seen a lot worse. And so extra sanctions and taking away, you know, Apple Pay and McDonald's won't make a difference. Neither probably will mobilization. So 
clearly to me, they're not stable anymore. Um, and there's probably much more infighting than we can see at the public level. But that doesn't tell me yet that they're really falling apart. I think it's fair to say that these regimes are inherently sort of fragile, right? But it's it just you can never predict the timing of when they're going to fall apart. I mean, you know, Timur Kuran, this this sort of economic historian at Duke, has this idea of cascades that occur in these regimes. Like, you know, once you sort of realize that your own private beliefs are also held as private beliefs by other people, uh, then you sort of change your behavior. But But you have to sort of get to some sort of a tipping point. And I wonder if in Russia today, we are anywhere near close to some sort of a cascade occurring among the Russians themselves, particularly among, you know, sort of more, you know, liberal oriented Russians, if you will. I think if 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 anything, like I would I I would say that we're probably far away from that. Like if anything, there is something happening among the Russian elite, which might lead to changes. Maybe, you know, Putin falls out of the window. And they have been having problems with windows, I'm told. And, and and sort of sort of safety standards in buildings, but but that would not necessarily mean some sort of qualitative change of the regime. And there obviously have been changes like within the command structure. We might want to talk about this General Surovikin, uh, who is now leading the, the the Russian operations. Oh my oh oh my God! He was he was in Syria. They were all in Syria. <laughs> I mean, how much more brutal can the Russians be than they already have been? I mean, you know, they're whatever, you know. I mean, this weekend it all got really personal for me because they almost hit that pedestrian path, the the glass bridge in Kiev. And I mean, I, I went running there. I mean, beautiful views sort of connects to the nearby parks. Like if this is a war against runners, then... Now you're really pissed, yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, just just to wrap up, I've been trudging my way and there's really no other way to describe it, even though it's a really wonderful set of books. Uh, Stephen Kutkin's biographies of Stalin. And right now I'm sort of like in the early 1930s. And the thing that strikes me about these books is like Stalin could have been pushed out. But, I mean, he had to screw up epically many, many, many times. And nobody ever, you know, got, got, he got rid of everybody else. Uh, God knows whether Putin has, uh, you know, Stalin's gift for being a dictator. But um you know, it just reminds me of really how opaque, you know, Russian elite politics is to a rational Western, you know, liberal mind, you know. So they may have some sort of systemic strategic rationale for what they do, but it's it's a little hard to penetrate sometimes. Well, I think it's both, you know, good news and bad news. It's good news in the sense that in these regimes, like there aren't normal feedback loops that we sort of have in democracies and open societies. So so the system sort of grows sclerotic. And, and so it's, you know, it's unlikely that they will now like suddenly become far more effective at conducting the war in Ukraine. I mean, the bad news is that, yeah, they can sort of linger on and be 
a pretty malign force for the in, in in the world for a very very long time, and I think we should sort of plan accordingly. Well, so you're telling me there'll always be an Eastern Front. Well, you know, if there isn't, we'll retire happy and well, that's us. Okay, I, I need the paycheck. So, uh, <laughs> on on that note, why don't you pipe us ashore, Dalibor? We'll do. From Dalibor Rohach and Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Sosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. You can also sign up for our newsletter um, through the link, which is included in the show notes. The fortnightly newsletter will give you updates of new episodes, Q&As with your three hosts, the three of us. And that way you can also stay up to date with our op-eds and articles, papers, books on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.